0: because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about grief counseling or what it's like to work as a minister, then this is the episode for you because my next guest earned her master's in divinity from the Chicago Theological Seminary, is an ordained United Church of Christ, also known as UCC minister, and a certified grief counselor. But before I introduce you to Melissa DeWare, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that comes out really about once a month. It's packed with career insights and inspiration, as well as tools to help you level up your job search and your career journey. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Melissa Duer, an ordained United Church of Christ minister and a certified grief counselor. Since Melissa's mother's death in 2005, she has been passionate about helping those who grieve and supporting them through their journey. Four years later, in 2009, Melissa became a Stephen ministry leader through her work at the United Church of Christ Church. She's trained those who work with others and supported many within her UCC church family during their most challenging days. Melissa is known and recognized for her gifts as a compassionate listener, a faithful optimist, and knowledgeable confidant. Earlier in her career, after earning a master's in education from the University of Virginia and a BA in education from DePaul University, Melissa taught in elementary school and worked with diverse populations. She's also taught English language acquisition at the college level. Melissa teaches right now through webinars and facilitating retreats as well as speaking engagements. Her passion is to acknowledge and address the grief that we will all eventually experience, understand the impacts of loss while gently helping others walk through their dark days into the light of hope. And if you are interested in learning how to break into ministry, break into this field, Check out show notes for this episode to see if Melissa's espresso shots episode has already dropped. Melissa, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I still am drinking my coffee. It's okay okay when we started, but it's... (laughs) That's right. We just finished recording our espresso shots episode. And I never asked you, what kind of coffee do you drink in the DeWare household? I'm the only coffee drinker, believe it or not, but it's a Starbucks, Pikes Place. Oh, very nice. Okay. You are the only coffee drinker, really? Are others tea drinkers or they're just not into caffeine? They're into um, maybe Diet Coke. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> we used to be into Diet Coke in my family as well and have kind of transitioned out of that with my husband, at least into iced tea. But I am, oh my God such, I'm enough of a coffee drinker for like a household of 10. (laughs) So Melissa, I was thinking before we get into what you have done as an ordained UCC minister and certified grief counselor, for those who may not be familiar with the United Church of Christ, the UCC, which to be honest, I know I've heard of it, but before I started preparing for this interview, I was like, hmm. I wonder what makes the UCC unique, and I, I had to Google it myself. Could you please give our listeners just a quick overview? Sure. The UCC is the far-left progressive side
1: of Protestantism. It's always had this progressive lens of, I think it was the first male black minister, the first ordained women minister. And in 1957, there were four different congregations that came together. But one of our founders were the Congregationalists who were the pilgrims. So we go way back. (laughs) But now we're here as it's one of the smaller denominations, but it is very passionate about inclusive theology, right? We have this
0: radical stance that, that says God loves everyone. <laughs> so that's, that's where we are. God loves everyone, no matter their sexual orientation, how they self-identified, the color of their skin. And what else would you put in there? We call that our open and affirming designation. So yes, there are
1: women clergy, there are gay clergy. We try to be inclusive of everyone, regardless of their mental capabilities, sexual orientation gender
0: preference, it's all in there because we believe that we are all the beloved of God. It's really beautiful. And you mentioned 1957, just again, for those who may not be familiar with UCC, the UCC was formed in 1957. So it's a quite a young denomination. It was formed in Cleveland, Ohio, and it involved the merger of the evangelical and reformed church and the congregational christian churches and i believe there are about a million members today is that about right correct that was what wikipedia told me so just <laughs> ground <Right>. truth that <laughs> the merger of these four traditions is what brought us together so melissa there are obviously a lot of people who join churches but only a small handful of them decide to become ordained When and why did you want to become a minister?
1: Well, it was very much tied to my grief journey with my mother. And when I was with her at her deathbed, I was recognizing this very sacred space and I could feel an energy, a presence of God. And it it just, it deepened my faith. And having that moment of saying goodbye to her was profound, and you know, I walked into her bedroom, and at this point, she wasn't able to speak after a 14-year battle with breast cancer. And I, I kissed her goodbye You know, one time for each of my children. And I said, I am going to make sure that the kids remember you, and you will always be Nan and always a part of their life. And then, of course, I've apologized for being 12, something she never <laughs> had forgiven me for because I was such a difficult adolescent. And then I said, don't forget to blink the lights, which is what her mother had done when she passed away. Days later, the lights started blinking and my mom said, has that ever happened before on that chandelier? I'm like, no. She's like, that's my mom. She's in heaven. And we went on. So I said to her, don't forget to blink the lights. So after I got the phone call that she had passed away on December 26th, right after Christmas, I came back to my parents' home. And there was this beautiful grapevine tree that was covered in 2,500 sparkling lights that was out in the yard. And I was in my mom's bedroom and I was talking to her and it felt so surreal because she had just been there. And then a strand of light started blinking at me and I called my dad and I said, dad, you have to come in here and see this. And it was such an affirmation that there's something more beyond this world right? The body dies, but the soul lives. It's this energy source. And I had to make sense of this. And when I went back home to my place in Chicago, I wasn't with that community that was grieving my mother. I was isolated. And I had such a difficult time in my grief because I had three young children. My father was distraught and I was not grieving for myself. And it was just a complicated process. And I felt so alone and I was so isolated. And I didn't understand why no one talked about death. I'm like, this is a significant part of my life. Like my life has forever changed. Where's the conversation about this, right? We talk about the facts of life, of productivity, you know, and and how babies are made, but then babies grow old and they die. And what does that look like? And it just really was a calling to me. It's like, this conversation has to be shared. And I went to my minister at the church and we didn't have a grief support group, and that's how we got into the Stephen ministry so that there could be this conversation and walking with people who were grieving. And one thing led to the next. I was you know, with all these different people through their journey of end-of-life illness or children, adult children who were grieving the loss of their parent and just realizing that this is a common denominator within all of our lives. We're all going to lose our parents we're all going to lose friends. It's just so much a part of life. And so how do we move through it and what's going to sustain us? And so that's where all of this energy came from and this passion, because I don't want anyone to ever feel as isolated as I did. And they don't need to, because there is support, there is compassion. And ironically, there's the people in your lives that you think are going to be there for you sometimes aren't. And that feels like a whole nother loss as well. And then there's this beautiful surprise of people you didn't think you knew that well, but they have been through something and they come out of the woodwork and they hold you. So there's that yin and yang going on. But I want to make sure that people are supported. We have to get this grief conversation normalized. And we need to be sympathetic to the symptoms and the feelings and the behaviors of grief. Because when you are freshly grieving, the world moves too quickly. You're not able to concentrate. You're not able to focus. You're irritable. You're not able to sleep or eat or, you know, all of these patterns are disrupted. And if we attend to those gently, early, we're going to have a healthier grief and process the grief in a healthier way rather than denying it and burying it. And that's that's when bad things happen, right? When we shove it under the rug. It's where you get substance abuse and alcoholism and we think we're burying it, but what happens is it's actually growing and it's growing teeth because it will come back and bite you at a very inappropriate time when life is stressing you out in other ways. So that's what I'm trying to help people avoid because there's just the attention and the normalizing of it. I think 80% of people don't need clinical help through their grief, they just need to be witnessed
0: and held. Mm, so powerful. Before we started this interview, considering the audience who are listening right now, college students and young professionals, and some of whom may have just graduated, we're doing this interview in early June 2021. This is graduation season. You said to me, and in fact, you have a son who is graduating in two days, that graduation for This cohort of students, and certainly in 2020, is also a process that can involve grieving. What advice do you have for these young people who experience the pandemic and are also experiencing one of the biggest transitions that they will have in their their lives? Yeah, I think name it. Name the losses because there's this
1: expectation that when you're graduating, you're just so supposed to be so elated and so crazed with optimism. And it's it can be that. And there are absolutely moments of that. But it's also moments of goodbyes, loss of normalcy. You're moving out of a house that you've been in. You, you're moving away from friends that you've acquired, right? There's a lot of things that are going to change. And by naming those changes, you are giving them air and people are able to witness it, right? sadness that you're leaving friends. It's okay, right? This graduation, this expectation that we have to be so positive about it. It's okay to sort of lament the things that are going to be lost. And it's okay to have this anticipatory grief of the unknown. And even if you have a job, you're still moving to another city. You don't know what it's like to work 40 hours
0: a day after a college... 40 schedule. hours a week, I hope. or, or a, a week. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, there are some areas of finance where it may feel like 40 hours a day, 40
1: hours, but that just that change alone of sitting at a desk and trying to concentrate for 40 hours a week is very different than the lifestyle that you've had. So there will be sort of loss of what you've had as you transition into this new frontier, and that's okay. And it's okay to say it, right? That you don't have to keep this hyper facade of of optimism and enthusiasm and of course it's going to be there but there's scary things that are out there as well and it's important to name them and if you name them people can support you through them
0: so by naming it what does that look like it says you know i'm really i was really excited to
1: graduate but now i'm really going to miss my three best friends who are now scattered all over the country and I'm nervous about going to find a new apartment and living by myself. What if you have graduated and you were in a sorority house with 70 girls, right? There was always someone to talk to and a great way to procrastinate. You just walk out in the hallway with a bag of chips and there's somebody around. So it's going to be different living by yourself and just acknowledging it. If you acknowledge it and name it, you can attend to it. If you keep it dark and don't identify it, then it's, it's going to be... Messed up in your head. It's going to be this like knot of yarn and you're not going to know what you're feeling. So I just pull, just pull that thread and try to figure out and use specific words, right? If you're angry, what is it really angry or are you frustrated? Are you scared? Are you tentative,
0: right? So using that specific language and then people can hold you in that space. Thank you. So how long ago did you become a minister and then what was the period of time between when you became a minister and when you decided to become a certified grief counselor? So I came to ministry
1: late in life. And as I was 2016, when I graduated from seminary and then was ordained that October. And my first job in ministry was at my home church. And my primary focus was pastoral care. Because right, that's what brought me to it with the Stephen ministry. That's what I like to do. I like to hold hands and do the one-on-one. And that was a beautiful experience. And I was there part-time and I was just starting to outgrow my role. I wanted to do more. I wanted time up at the pulpit. I was gaining my confidence in the role behind the collar. And I took a position as a sole pastor for an interim period. So I get to do it all, right? And that was really wonderful and validating. And then my husband and I decided that we're moving. And as you mentioned, the UCC is not very large. There's not a plethora of churches everywhere, but we were determined to come to Boulder and there's two churches here, but they're both well attended by wonderful ministers that I've met. And it's like, okay, I need to pivot, right? That's the word of the pandemic, pivot. So what am I going to do that feeds me and I can do good? So before we left Chicago to come to Boulder, I had reached out to the community college where I was working. I said, would you mind if I gave a webinar to faculty as this pandemic's unfolding? This population of young adults is going to be experiencing death and they probably never have before. And how are we going to support them as teachers? that have these students that show up that are scared, who have lost a grandparent, who didn't get to say goodbye. You know, All of these complicated issues, they're bringing that to the classroom and they may not be the students. And I think the audience we're talking to right now can say, I wasn't my best student because I couldn't be, right? All the uncertainty and all of the losses that were happening. So that's where this sort of rooted and was seeding And so I'm like, okay, when I got out to Colorado, I was walking the neighborhood and met a woman who actually does online curriculum. I said, would you be interested in having a webinar on grief? She's like, oh my gosh, that would be great. Well, she's got 3,700 colleges in her network. So I was able to reach a lot of people and support this faculty saying, this is what you're going to see right? Grief is nonlinear. Grief is multidimensional. This is going to have all kinds of rippling effects. And so it's not only your students, but your coworkers, and perhaps yourself, right? How do you deal with this when you're grieving because of all of the symptoms and behaviors that are happening to us? And so that it's just been building. And so I started this company where I'm like, if I can say it to one person, which I used to do holding hands, or I can say it to 10 people, I can say it to 100, I can say it to 1,000, I can say it to a million, right? because we all need this conversation that's not happening because we're grief aversive in our culture we don't want to talk about it just it's not going to happen deny 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 we sip from the fountain of youth we all think we're immortal and that's just not the reality so i think we're going to be healthier if we talk about it and so that's my platform now it's just getting out there and talking about grief and particularly in the workplace because that's where most of us spend our time right? 40 hours a day or 40 hours a week, we're there. (laughs) And that's going to impact our performance. But it's also a big part of our social lives, our social support, and what we need. And our performance is tied to it. There's all these different aspects tied around grief, whether it's death related or the griefs of the pandemic that were non-death related with our loss of community, our loss of normalcy, our loss of toilet paper, right? There's different things that were happening that upset our change. And I think when we frame the language as loss, and one of the words I like to offer is bereavement, which means literally to be robbed. I think it's important for these college students like, to say, I was bereaved of a senior year. I was robbed of my senior year. And how empowering that is and how it's more of a common lexicon, right? It empowers you to say because we think of grief as a single emotion that constitutes self-pity or weakness or just, you know, it's diminutive, but to be bereaved, to be robbed, right? there's that sense of injustice of what we expected and what didn't happen. So I offer that word to your population because it, it really does help in the naming of what's been lost.
0: Mm, that was amazing. That was really amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So you became a minister. You were ordained, was it October of 2016? And then how long after that did you become a certified grief counselor? The certified grief counselor I did last summer because I
1: had given that webinar. I'm like, you know what, I can I can bulk up my credentials in this specific area. So while I was new to Boulder and, and lockdown without knowing anyone, I just stuck my nose in, in the books and, and became a grief counselor through an online course. And it was a lot of skill set that I'd already had from ministry. But I think that credential is important to people. So that's newer, but it was just kind of affirmation of
0: things that I've been doing. Got it. And how... How long did it take to get the certification? Just curious for any of our listeners who may want to get something like that. Yes,
1: The certification is four different courses and they're self-paced. So it's just a matter of how quickly you can plow through a textbook and different books. And then you take a test. This particular license through the American Grief Association was four courses. And I did it maybe
0: four months. Wow. I didn't know there was an American Grief Association. Who do they represent? Well, you have to qualify to, oh, it's
1: the AICPI. I'll have to look that up for you. But it's for the healthcare providers. So you have to have an advanced degree to get this. You need a master's in, in psychology or counseling or nursing or ministry before you can qualify for it. Got it. It's an addendum to an advanced degree.
0: As I was preparing for this interview, Melissa, I was thinking, you know, when we're kids, little kids, And people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's the fireman, it's the doctor, the astronaut, the fill in the blank. But I don't know how many little kids would ever say, I would love to grow up and be a grief counselor, or I would love to grow up and be a minister. Do you think that should change?
1: Ministry is an interesting animal because there's such a strong call to it. And you have to sort of defend that call, right? What brought you to it? And it's, they call it a discernment period. So it's a big process to get ordained. You can go to the graduate school, but then you have to be called by a church to work there to be ordained. So there are parallel paths that are happening concurrently in in your academic pursuit, but then also the church or the denomination is sort of mentoring and monitoring you. I probably sat through 18 different interviews through the process where they're vetting you like almost every semester with the academics and your theology and what you're presenting and your mental well-being, the psychological profile test. There's a lot to it. I think maybe the PKs, the preacher kids who are versed in ministry can often find that call and it's something that they're known and they might grow up saying that they want to be a minister. But I I often say as one of my cocktail conversations, I'm two things I never thought I would be, and that's a third wife and a minister.
0: <laughs> so there you have it. Life takes a lot of twists and turns. It certainly does and As you and I were chatting before we started this interview, some might call it a calling, whether you are called into the ministry or you're called into fill-in-the-blank profession. What is your purpose? I also believe, and maybe because this is ecumenical to say it this way, that magic happens in our lives. And I find it incredibly exciting. To say to our young listeners, you have no idea, none of us do, who you're going to meet, whether it's later today, tomorrow, a month from now, who's going to open your eyes to some, let's just keep it within the professional realm, some type of job or career that maybe didn't exist before, or maybe you had just never been exposed to it and is suddenly like this, oh my God, revelation that changes your life and that pulls you in an unexpected direction. And that has certainly happened to me many times in my life. Now, I knew different industries, but because of some thing, sometimes bad, that happened in your life, often bad. I'm thinking about the loss of your mother, for me, it was the loss of jobs that ended up pulling me or pushing me into a different direction that turned out to be a gift, yes. a blessing. Yes. I think losses demand
1: in this part of the grief cycle is the meaning making, right? You have to dig deep and rebuild. And that's when we start to become more intentional and more aware of things that we like to or we didn't like and more open to the possibility of change because we have change thrust upon us. And it's like, how are we going to get back up from this experience? I, I think that 90% of changes happen because of loss, right? There's endings before there can be beginnings. And that's where we find our grit.
0: Amen. <laughs> I would definitely have an amen to that. Melissa, can you just quickly take us into what it was like as a minister in the UCC church. What was a day like for you? What were your responsibilities? I'm sure it like ran the gamut in terms of it was everything from A to Z.
1: It is because you're dealing with people, right? And people are unpredictable and multidimensional and have lots of different needs. My primary responsibilities I mentioned were pastoral care. So I did a lot of outreach for the seniors who were at home, right? That that they were homebound. I would do visits and calls. So there was a time where I had more friends over 70 than under 70. I just love my old people because they're so wise and I get to visit them That was a big part. A lot of notes, a lot of follow-through, follow-up on situations. If they were in the hospital, I would go and visit them when they were home, coordinate that. A lot of work with funerals and supporting the family through that and planning the services, which I actually love doing funerals because families would come to you and, and you'd say, tell me about this person. Tell me about your mother. And you get these beautiful stories and you really start to learn who this person was, and the legacy that you can offer to the family, right? What's going to keep you going? And it's just a really beautiful process that you're there and you're creating this service for the family, right? The deceased is gone, but this is how are you going to hold them and lift them up through these dark days? And what are you going to give them to hang on to? That was a big part of it. And also the pastoral prayers that in our church, we would give probably a five-minute, prayer starting with, you know, for the world, for the community, and then for people. And it, we had this beautiful jazz pianist who would play melodies underneath it. And it was just so powerful. You could you could feel the congregation sort of exhale. And the power and the energy of just all of these prayers hanging in the air was profound. And then it's it's humbling because it's like we all come here needing something, that we're all thirsty for something bigger, and we're all connected. And that was really just a beautiful aspect of Sunday morning. But like I said before, it's such a privilege to walk with people and have them offer their vulnerability to you and tend to it so carefully. Right? Trust is fragile. And so you hold that safe space, and you're trusted with some of the most painful experiences of anyone's
0: life. We were chatting during the Espresso Shots episode about how potentially really draining this type of work can be and the importance of self care. How did you balance that? How did you? I can imagine you had some days that started very early and ended very late. You're preaching on a Sunday. That's, it could be a 24-7 type of job. You could be working there, there, 40 hours there, a day. <laughs> there are
1: moments that it feels like a 40-hour day. And there are moments, it's feast or famine, right? So there's sort of this adrenaline rush. And so Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock after church, we go out for a big breakfast, and then I'd be asleep on the on the couch. My husband called it the preacher nap, right? Because you're on, there's all these people from the congregation that are energized. So I'm going to connect with you and talk to you. So it's just, it's hyper-stimulating. And then I crash, at least for someone like myself who's an introvert. It really is walk the walk, right? In modeling self-care, mind, body, spirit, eating well, hydrating and exercising. And so, I would go out running before church or before work, and that was my trifecta. I would I had my friends, I had my exercise, and I had, you know, the socialization, and my day started beautifully, right? If I got that exercise in in the morning, Then I was then I was elevated, then I had something to give. But ministry is a huge burnout profession for that very reason of not protecting boundaries and carrying the weight of of so many people. So, you know, that's something that's always upfront as, you know, continuing ad credits. Like, how do you take care of yourself? And really kind of helping ministers do that. And I think I mentioned before there's sort of this academic lean in ministry. A lot of people are big readers, so they'd rather Sit and read rather than get up and run, but it's
0: it's both. You got You got to have both. It's got to be about balance. So interesting that you said you're an introvert. Yes, I would have expected that this profession would attract extroverts.
1: Oh, I think disproportionately most ministers are introverts, a hundred percent, because you can get up in the pulpit. And you can preach, right? It's where you get your energy. And you, and I would say I'm probably more of an ambivert, right? Which is 50-50. But the church that I was at, I would say 80% of the staff was an introvert. We'd all like go into our offices and read and write. <laughs> because it is a very, at least in the congregational tradition, it's always been a very heady discipline, right? It's been about the academics and the studying because in this faith tradition, it's about asking questions. It's not about accepting answers. It's really about kind of tearing it apart, you know, just chewing on it. And that's where you get this intellectual prowess thing
0: that's happening. Oh my goodness. I love that. Love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. So Melissa, let's, let's flashback quickly to when you were in college, you went to DePaul university and you got a BA in education. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated?
1: Not only was it a BA. Now, I went to college, I graduated in 1991, and it was almost like BA slash MRS. That was the expectation. And my parents were both first-generation college students and then mastered. My dad has a law degree and they said, education is the only thing that can never be taken from you. And they were adamant about our education, but also the pragmatics, which my mom, bless her heart, it was the best advice she could give. She's like, you need to be a teacher because it will offer you the most security. If anything happens to your husband, you can teach and you can still raise children. And it's the most flexible because you have the somersault. Well, by the time... <laughs> I graduated and got into teaching It became the least flexible, right? She had no idea the internet was going to come along or flex time or you know, telecommuting. Because when you're teaching, you can't even go to the bathroom when you want to. And I, I appreciate her pragmatics, right? That that was what I should do. And my father was a banker and my brother is a banker, right? It was just like this. Is... And we had a very limited menu, right? We just didn't know what else was out there. And I think that that's what's so exciting now for, for this young adult population is they know they're going to do something for a little while, but not forever. And that's, I'm with them, right? I'm just cutting my teeth on this new career and how exciting that is. And I, I feel the energy behind all of these different options. While it can be overwhelming, it's also the possibility of this networking and finding these niche type of things that didn't exist is where the energy lies. This is, this is the exciting part of it. So, did you know you were going to be a teacher when you graduated? So, after my student teaching, I really did not want to be a teacher because there was a situation in a school assembly, which I've never told this story before, and someone sneezed, and I had this glob of snot in the back of my (laughs) hair. And I'm like, I can't do this. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be a teacher. So, I graduated, and I'm like, I don't want to be a teacher. I'm not. I And my mom's like, fine. Like, I was really struggling. I did not want to go into teaching. And on an off chance, I applied to be an intern for a congressman from our home district. And so I ended up, and this is 1991, there was a recession going on. So at the time, it was just take whatever you could get and figure it out later. So I packed my car and drove to Washington, D.C. without a house and knocked on a door and ended up meeting this woman who grew up 20 minutes from me and our parents knew each other. It was crazy. We're still friends and took this job on Capitol Hill as an intern and then worked there three months. And they ultimately hired me as the executive assistant for the congressman, which was bizarre. Talk about like how the universe opens. I had never taken a poli-sci class and here I am on the Hill, walking the corridors with the most powerful
0: people in the world. <laughs> it was amazing. I love that. And I love the fact that I was a poli sci major. I did intern on the Hill, but I never really used the degree. And that's why I say your major is not the tiny house that you're going to be forced to live in for the rest of your life. Instead, it's the foundation of a professional skyscraper that you're building over the course of your life.
1: I completely agree. And I was too narrow in that. I I thought that I pigeonholed myself into that. And maybe it was the pragmatics of like, I think that I reached out to you. I'm like, I could have used you 30 years ago saying you can be anything you want. You don't have to be a teacher. If you get snot in your hair and you don't want to do this anymore, like move on. I really could have used that championing. Right, that you got your degree, now you can do anything. Right. And this whatever job you take, they're gonna, they're gonna mold you, they're gonna teach you, they're gonna give you the skill set that they're looking for. They're looking for character though. Are you willing to learn? Can you write? Can
0: you speak? Can you learn? Right? That's what college is about, learning how to learn. And I still think you have become a teacher. You're just a different kind of teacher than you had imagined when you were in college. Correct. Correct. It all comes back, right? It's full circle. I'm old enough that there's a lot
1: of circles in here. And ministry is very much about teaching, right? When I applied to seminary, I was like, okay, this sounds really weird. I have a background in teaching. They're like, okay, well, we talk about Jesus being a rabbi, rabbi means teacher. <laughs> right? It was not as disconnected as I thought. And really life is so much about teaching, regardless if we have that formal title or not, we're all teaching and informing one another. The
0: world is a classroom. And I think so long as you keep your interests kind of front and center, Follow your interests and lean into your strengths. When you look back, and I'm talking to our listeners right now, not to you, Melissa, but when you're our age, Melissa's in my age, and you look in the rearview mirror, it will seem almost as if you had planned it all out this way. The dots really do line up. There is a common thread that you're pulling. And I think your values come into that as well. Two final questions, and these are questions I try to ask all my guests, Melissa, and that is, could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you had a challenging boss. I know you talked about the kid, the loose knot in your hair, but it could also be a difficult colleague or just an unhealthy work-life balance, Maybe you failed in some way and had to find a way to bounce back. But the most important point here is that you struggled and you found a way to persevere. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process.
1: I've been asked this before what's my greatest failure? And this is kind of out there, but the greatest failure I had was not believing in myself because. I wasn't fitting the boxes in the way that I thought we were supposed to. Back to your major idea, right? And my career challenge was I did not protect my career when I stayed home to have my children. So I worked the first year my son was born, and then I was off for 20 years. And I did not protect my career in terms of my earning ability. And what was deteriorating in that was my self-confidence. And I would dabble with other little things. I was frustrated. You know, I had all different kinds of jobs. I was tutoring kids. I was a photographer. I was just trying to do something and get my hands around something because I had all this mental energy that needed a place. And I wanted to interact with adults. And I was at home with three little kids. And I don't begrudge that choice at all. Having raised my children, I felt like I was the best qualified to do that. But I wasn't able to find a way to keep a career going alongside of it, because I felt like I didn't have something to offer because I wasn't in the work world. And once I stepped out, I wasn't sure how to get back in. So for the young women and men who will be parenting, protect that career because you never know what's going to happen. And it will help your esteem. It will help your financial security, keeping something going. Because I ended up in a situation where my husband was unfaithful. And getting divorced and how scary that was not having a career that was going to support me. Right. So think about the big picture and believe in yourself and find a way to protect and keep yourself current. Right. So that you can jump back in and out of the workforce in different ways. And like you said, have that common new current language available to you. That would be my best advice based on my, my feelings.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I am sorry for the pain that you experienced going through that. Final question, Melissa, if you could go back to university, go back to DePauw and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Go
1: all in. You're there to learn. And there were so many opportunities at these universities that they dangle in front of you as the bells and whistles when you're applying. Don't forget to take advantage of them. And trust professors as people that are there to help and nurture you. I saw my professors as obstacles to the, <laughs> to the end, right? To my means. They are really there to care for you and mentor you and dig deep into whatever your passion is. So find it. Give yourself a chance to find that passion and and feed
0: yourself and become a life learner. What a perfect note on which to end. We're all learning about living our lives, living our personal lives to their fullest, living our professional lives to our fullest, so that when we are at the end of our lives hopefully we have no regrets hopefully we feel good about passing into the next well leaving our bodies let's just say that living well leads to dying well Mm. it's just that easy melissa where can our listeners find you and i say that both because you do coach individually but you also deliver workshops and give speeches and whatnot to corporations and schools and you fill in the blank there. I have a website called Whole Person
1: Conversations with an dot com, and also look me up on LinkedIn. I would love to connect and find out what you're up to and and create a relationship and see where that
0: leads us. Melissa, this has been. So wonderful. I just want to say thank you so, so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I have so many other questions that I would have loved to dig in to with you. So perhaps we'll just have to have you back on a LinkedIn live or something so that we can continue the conversation because this is... This is a topic that has so many layers to it, and I just greatly appreciate you carving out time to talk with me. I appreciate the privilege and opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of t for c we